You're listening to the One Track Mind podcast with host John Miller. Hey everyone, we took a bit of a break, but it's good to be back. In this episode, there's no guest, it's just me. And I want to talk about something that happened recently and what it means for the motorsports community. On April 16th, a good buddy of mine, Peter London, was killed in an on-track crash while coaching from the right seat at Palm Beach International Raceway. The details on what exactly happened uh, haven't been made clear, but the story that uh, has trickled out is that they were at the end of the back straightaway and there was some kind of a failure either with the brakes or loss of control and uh, there was an impact and uh, unfortunately, Peter passed away. Without having the details, I'm forced to speculate a bit but what we know paints enough of a picture that the specific failure is less relevant than the environment and sequence of events that led up to it. I'm gonna put the pieces together based on situations that I've seen and experienced firsthand. There are lessons to be taken from this tragedy and I hope that talking about it will honor the work that Peter was passionate about and the person that he was. I first met Peter in Orlando, Florida in around 2005. We met at an event somewhere at the track and then uh, soon later became fast friends. We were both chasing opportunities to race and coach uh, in the club and pro-level sports car world. And we spent a lot of time away from the track over dinner and drinks in downtown Orlando trying to solve all of racing's problems and, uh, and also help each other's careers out. We worked on a lot of different deals to try and actually race together as co-drivers at the time in, uh, in the Grand Am ST series. And we got really close a couple times, but uh, unfortunately never panned out, which is a shame because I'm sure that I would have learned a lot from him. I connected with him because he was idealistic, hardworking, and he believed in himself. And those were all traits that I looked to emulate. Um, I was trying to find my way as a, a racer and coach at the time, and he was a few years ahead of me. And his talent behind the wheel was, was definitely not the limiting factor in his racing career. Um, I just think he never found himself in a position to really show what he was capable of in top level equipment. I think Peter, the Peter that I knew could have been a, a household name uh, as a race car driver. He was, he was that good. And uh, despite that, uh, he always saw the bright side of things and he never got bitter, which is, is rare. He often went above and beyond in pretty much everything he did, and you could tell that he genuinely cared. He was really refreshing to be around in a, a competitive environment where, where people um, cannot trust each other and, and have grudges and feel like um, it's hard to make friends. Uh, Peter, Peter was one of my good friends. So with that attitude and, and his driving talent and affability, uh, he did find constant opportunities to work and continue to race and coach and win all throughout Florida and the Southeast. And his death is a colossal loss to the racing community and to everybody who knew him. So like I said, not a fun topic, but I think one of the most important things uh, for people involved in motorsports, in racing, in coaching, in this uh, this sport that we do to, to talk about because it's not the first time uh, we've lost somebody to right seat accident. Uh, just about three years ago, almost to the day, I'm sorry, it's 2015, that was four years ago. Yeah, April 13th, 2014, I wrote an article for Jalopnik called Please Stop Killing My Friends. And if you Google that, the article will pop up. Um, it went slightly viral at the time that I wrote it, and it was about um, another guy that I knew, uh, a guy named Gary Terry, 
who is a stock car racer and uh, driving instructor. Um, and he's working uh, at the Disney Exotic Driving Experience, which was uh, kind of the Richard Petty school uh, combined with a, an, an exotics driving experience. And that, that crash um, was preventable in a different way. Um, and if you go and read the article, I talk about, about what happened there and why it was basically a case of uh, running the track in the opposite direction of what it was intended to. And there was kind of a, a worst case scenario uh, accident and, uh, and Gary lost his life. Uh, so almost four years to the day. My friend Peter lost his life in, in Palm Beach um, to a, a similar type of accident, coaching from the right seat, and the driver lost control. Part of, the, of my frustration is that there is just too much speculation that goes on about what happened, and we're forced to speculate because it's not like when there's a plane crash or when there's some other governing body that, that looks after all these, these incidents and looks at what happened and why and, and publishes a, a report that we can all download and uh, learn from. And so there, there's not a whole lot of info out there. What we know is that Peter was right seat uh, with a, a very young 18-year-old um, inexperienced driver in a 2013 Lamborghini Aventador. Um, the story that I've heard from people who were there or, or near there and, and passed on some details was that it was kind of a last minute thing. And so uh, it, it was a few people with exotic streetcars that showed up and, and wanted some instruction. And so on the surface, that all sounds great. And that's, that's almost to a T of what you would expect and what you would want from somebody who doesn't have a whole lot of experience. Okay, don't street race get your buddies together, go rent out the racetrack and call up a professional and have him come coach you. So far, uh, we're actually batting a thousand. So what went wrong then? First of all, it was kind of a last minute thing. And so there's, there's a big question about uh, the car. You know, what, what happened to the car? These guys were out there. Um, you know, they were maybe a few sessions into the evening when the accident occurred. And so you know, uh, a 2013 Lamborghini Aventador uh, is a very, very fast street car. Um, and generally, as somebody gets more laps under their belt, gets more confident and comfortable, they tend to push harder and go faster. It's just natural. So uh, as the night goes on, uh, this young gentleman is is lapping more and more with, with Peter in the right seat. And at some point, something goes wrong. And it was at the end of the back straightaway at Palm Beach. So for those of you who haven't driven there, um, you enter the, the the back straightaway in like a third gear right-hander at maybe 60 and 70 miles an hour. And then you're flat out for close to a third of a mile before you slam on the brakes for a very tight hairpin-like 180 degree corner to bring you back onto the front straightaway. And, uh, and it was the, at the end of the back straightaway there, the fastest part of the track when, uh, when the, the driver lost control and went straight into uh, uh, what the news has reported uh, was a concrete barrier. And I'm probably opening a can of worms here in bringing up track safety, but part of my process when I show up to a racetrack at the beginning of a weekend is if there's an opportunity to do a track walk, I, I absolutely do it. Uh, especially if I can bring along the person I'm coaching or my co-driver, or not only from a performance perspective, but from a you know what happens if perspective. Um, it's a it's a great opportunity to go out and do that, 
and you know looking at things like curbing or you know ruts that might form or um, the big thing for me is is I walk around a track and I look at okay what if uh, what if the shit hits the fan right here and um, something breaks on the car and I lose control or I go to the brake pedal and there's nothing there what's what's my next move and I I think my guess is that a lot of drivers don't do that but. I approach it from the sense that I, I want to know, I want to have at least ran it through my head once or twice um, what my plan would be uh, if the worst case scenario happened, just so that if and when it does happen, there's a small chance that I may revert back to the fact that, hey, I've thought about this before. I have a chance to maybe do something to uh, to participate in my own survival. And, and sometimes there's very little you can do. You can maybe aim for the softest spot on the wall, uh, or sometimes there, there is more than you can do. Um, and so, you know, that just being heads up about the reality of the situation you're putting yourself in, because, you know, I was having a conversation with, with a buddy of mine, um, just yesterday and, and we were talking about a, a crash that somebody had, uh, in a race car and got hurt during a, during a race weekend. And he made a comment, well, I thought those cars were supposed to be super safe. And my reply was, well, they're, they're safer. They're not safe. And this is not a safe thing that we do. Um, you know, not even racing, just driving to the limit of adhesion on track, you know, taking a car out and pushing it as hard as we can to the limit of grip, to the limit of, of power, using it to its fullest potential, it's not a safe activity. Right, all of the danger cannot be pulled out of this activity that we do, and you know that that's for some people that's part of the point. That's part of why it's fun. It's dangerous. It's a little scary. There are consequences, but in a learning environment like the environment where Peter was in, where he was coaching from the right seat, um, he was putting his life in the hands of the person driving the car. And and you know, make no mistake, if you if you coach from the right seat, or if you drive on track and you put people in your right seat, either to get feedback from them, uh, to learn from them, or even just to give a thrill ride, you have their life in your hands. And so, you know, there are some assumptions that I'm going to make about what happened here. I, I don't know. I'm speculating uh, on on 99% of, of the details, but um, these are things that, that I would think about, or, or I would want you or anyone to think about, uh, especially if uh, people are, are in the right seat. Um, and, and the whole right seat debate is a whole, a whole nother conversation. But, but first of all, um, understand that when you put a street car on track, you've already got a higher risk profile. So in a situation like with Peter's accident, we're already at a bit of a disadvantage here because we're in a street car, a very fast street car. The other thing to think about here that or the next thing to think about is that most people make big assumptions and the assumption usually goes something like this it's a lamborghini i paid three hundred thousand dollars for it it's basically a race car for the street uh and so i'm going to go drive it the ma- the way that it was meant to be driven right that, that's what we always hear people saying oh it's great that that guy takes his cars out and he drives them how they were supposed to be driven. He drives them hard. And so the, there is a difference between a prepped race car, even a, a spec Miata has a much higher prep level than any exotic street car that came from the dealership floor and has never seen the inside of a race shop or has never had a race mechanic take off the wheels uh, and bleed the, the brakes with high temp brake fluid and make sure that the tires are in, in good condition 
uh, make sure the brake pad has enough life left, all the things that, that you would do in a basic prep check for a, a race car. Um, and, and street cars are not driven that way day in, day out, right? When you go to the grocery store, you're not full throttle to ABS brakes in every corner sliding it around. If you were, uh, one, you're a jackass. Uh, and number two, uh, you would find out pretty quickly that you would have to replace your tires and replace your brakes and do all the kind of preventative maintenance that um, a race car does uh, a lot more often <laughs> on your street car if you drove it like that. The, the next piece here is that these modern cars are all so damn fast. The, the amount of performance that comes out of uh, a modern exotic is just staggering. And it, it's more than most people can wrap their heads around. And so mentally, people are going to be taxed. They're going to be running out of focus, running out of mental energy pretty quickly. So one of the ways to think about it is that if you've been around kids or if you have kids and you've seen the way that they just absolutely pass out at the end of a long day, it's because their brains are trying to decide what information that they just saw for the first time in their life is important to hang on to and what information isn't important to hang on to. And when you're driving cars on a racetrack, and you're inexperienced, your brain is going through the same process. You're seeing a lot of new things. You're being told a lot of new things. There's so much coming at you. You're trying to decide what's important. What do I need to focus on? And that activity takes so much out of you mentally that most people don't recognize um, how much work their brain is doing consciously and subconsciously to learn how to drive a car quickly around a racetrack. So in a lot of these other programs um, that I've worked over the years, we, we know that. And so we limit the laps accordingly. We found that five laps is kind of the magic number for what people can absorb at a time. And these shorter sessions tend to be a lot more effective. And even with all of the nannies, the traction control, the ABS, uh, stability control, all, all the things that, that makes these cars easy and confidence inspiring to drive, uh, when you step on the throttle, and it's mind-bendingly quick, and the brake zone comes at you really fast, you don't have time to process all this information uh, as, as a new driver, as somebody who's inexperienced. Um, I'm a big believer in, in high-quality lapping, high-quality testing and practice, um, and not just going out and burning laps all day long. Because uh, there's a certain point when you just stop processing. You're, you're not able to learn anymore. You're just out there banging around your, your lap times will suffer and you start missing your apexes and you start breaking too early or you start, you know, coasting in between. And I see it all the time. People underestimate big time the amount of mental and physical energy that it takes to, to have really high quality track time. So the, the guess, the thought is here that the, is that they lost brakes somehow, or that they weren't able to slow the car. Um, the guess is is that it was about 150 miles per hour when uh, when they they lost brakes. 150 miles per hour. What does what does that mean? It sounds fast, but uh, that's 220 feet per second. They're they're effectively covering three quarters of a football field in one second. And so, as a driver, when you go to the brake pedal and it goes to the floor, um, I, I've I've had it happen to me twice in my racing career, and it's. It's the ultimate oh shit moment. Thankfully, one time I had uh, I had plenty of runoff room and uh, and, it, and it wasn't uh, 
wasn't an issue. I, I was able to get the car slowed down. I had you know a mile of runoff, uh, but I was very lucky that it, it happened where it did, going into, into turn one at uh, at Indy in uh, 2014. Uh, the other time it happened was uh, uh, the year prior to that at Daytona, <clears throat> coming into turn five, the, the second horseshoe, and there's not a whole lot of runoff there. Um, and so at, at that point, it was pretty clear. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a big one here. I'm gonna go in as straight as possible. I didn't have time to spin the car, didn't have time to, to try and do anything to slow the car down. And uh, it, it's terrifying. Uh, so as a driver, you really, in some situations, you don't have any time to react, especially, especially if you haven't done a track walk or done a, a you know slow drive around to talk about and think about these worst case scenario situations. So what what if? What do you do if the brakes go out? And in, in like I said, in some situations, there's not much that can be done, um, but at least you could think about it. The other option, yank on that e-brake. Uh, there were two crashes at Sebring during the uh, IMSA Michelin tire race uh, in TCR cars where, where they had, had some braking issues. Um, and I don't, I don't know the specifics of those issues, but um, TCR cars have a, a big e-brake, a big uh, you know, a rear brake handle. Um, and both of the drivers, uh, one was Nick Galanti and, and one, um, the other driver, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, but uh, the, it was an E-Euro parts car. One crash was in turn seven at Sebring and one crash was at turn 17. So these are long straightaways into hard braking zones. That's uh, as, you know, as far as brake failures go, that that's pretty much worst case scenario. Because if there's not a ton of runoff, you're going to hit something. Both of these drivers had the wherewithal to yank that e-brake, do whatever they could to get the car slowed down, scrub as much speed as they could. And the general wisdom here too is that if you're able to go in backwards, it, it's safer than going in forwards. And so both of these uh, TCR crashes at Sebring, the drivers were heads up enough to yank the e-brake, get the car slowed down as much as possible, cover as much distance as they could. And eventually they both did hit the wall. They both walked away though, because you know, number one, they were in race cars with all the safety equipment. They were lucky enough to have an e-brake to pull to scrub some of the speed off, and uh, and they went in backwards. Which you know, is it safer? Yeah, probably. Um, you know, one of them actually drove away from it. Uh, I think Nick uh, was able to actually drive back to the pits after uh, after that accident. So these two guys were were lucky. They uh, they also both hit tire walls, and uh, they both are professional level, very experienced drivers who did everything in their power uh, to participate in their own survival. You know, Peter was was not in that situation. Um, most streetcars these days, even, you know, forget exotics, pretty much every streetcar these days that still has um, an e-brake or a parking brake, it's it's a button or, a, or a, an electronic lever. Um, some of them still work, uh, it, even at speed, if you're able to, to pull them or, or push them or, um, whatever, it's, it's obviously not as intuitive as just reaching over and yanking a handle. Uh, but again, that's one of these things that, you know, as somebody who's sitting in the right seat, you have to, to be able to think about that. That's something that you, in the moment, if you go from everything's fine to all of a sudden everything's not fine, you don't want to be looking around for that button to pull. Um, you know, I, I've, I've uh, I worked an event a long time ago where we were in a streetcar that we were on an autocross that had the e-brake button on the center console. And 
I basically rode around with my hand on that button at all times. And we were just in a parking lot, you know, showing people what these cars could do at a very low speed. But my thought process was the instant that I noticed this guy's lost control, I don't want him to hit a, you know, a, a parking stop or, you know, spin into the cones and damage the car. Um, and in my experience, I'm going to notice when he loses control, probably about three seconds before he has any clue uh, that, that we've lost control and spun the car. Luckily, I didn't have to pull the e-brake at all with any of the, uh, the participants in that program. But some buddies of mine who were also instructors there, we went out and tested it to say, hey, you know, does this work? And, you know, thankfully it did. So all of this leads to the kind of obvious question, what, what can be done to, uh, to prevent something like this in the future? How do, we, how do we move forward from this? How do we learn from it? Especially when the details around what happened uh, are, are few and far between, and we're doing a lot of speculating, uh, which I don't like to do, but without a report, without details, without an explanation, we're, we're forced to speculate uh, based on experience. And so we have to kind of connect the dots, and, and that's what I've tried to do uh, to a certain extent here today, to, to paint a picture of what, what might have happened uh, to Peter so if you get in the right seat, it's your job as the person sitting in the right seat or your job as the event organizer to explain to the inexperienced drivers that going quickly should not be part of their plan when their experience level is very low, right? Learning the fundamentals, um, listening, uh, progressing at a steady rate, small bites, we always talk about um, taking small steps, little by little moving forward, um, not blowing past these big milestones or these big moments where um, we need to stop and recognize, okay, we've made a bit of an improvement here. We've learned something. Let's pause, absorb it, go out and do it again, really hammer it home, make sure we're doing it right 10 out of 10 times, not seven out of 10 times, making sure that, that we communicate effectively. And so, if you go out and uh, if you Google the HPDE Instructor Manifesto, um, you know, the world-renowned driver coach, uh, Ross Bentley, um, he's literally written the book. He's written a lot of books on, uh, on how to drive cars quickly on racetracks, um, both the, the mechanics of it, the, the how of it, but also the why of it. Um, and, and it's a, it's a great document. Uh, so if you, if you Google HPDE Instructor Man Manifesto and, but um, if you're out there putting yourself in the right seat, um, this is re required reading yeah, in my book. It, it really breaks down um, the way that you should approach instructing, the way that you should think about it, and the way that you should communicate with uh, the, the people that you're instructing and you're coaching and you're trying to help. This should be kind of a wake-up call. So Google that one, hpdeinstructortips.com. In addition, the Motorsport Safety Foundation uh, has created a program to certify instructors. And, and it's uh, it's the first step in a process of getting people uh, on a, a common certification program that, that teaches people how to teach. It's largely targeted towards HPDE, um, driver education type of events. And a lot of the coaching that I do is, is at... Um, at race weekends, uh, at, at you know, uh, people who are already competing, but there, there's a huge portion of instructors out there um, who you know will never go wheel to wheel racing, and that's fantastic. That's great. You know, they'll take their street cars out, uh, and and they'll go to the track day, and they'll you know go out in their instructor session and drive and have a great time, and then they'll donate their time to uh, to the organization to help 
the the new guys out. And that's been going on since the dawn of track days, right? Uh, and that's a very common model for uh, for the HPDE, the uh, high performance driver education crowd. Um, and now, thankfully, the the Motorsport Safety Foundation uh, is doing doing some really important work in uh, standardizing these certification programs, so that uh, instructors are on the same page. And uh, if you Google Motorsport Safety Foundation instructor certification, or just go to www.motorsport-safety.org and then click on Academy, you'll see some more information about their certification process. So I would think, you know, next steps beyond that even too is as a, a, an event organizer as a, and as tracks, you know, what, what can they do to improve and evolve your, uh, your safety protocols? Um, and as the automotive uh, and motorsports landscapes, as they evolve the, the safety protocols and, and the way that people respond to incidents um, should evolve right along with it. So for example, at Long Beach this year, uh, the Formula Drift event, awesome event to go to as a spectator. This year, a an all-electric Camaro drift car showed up, and I'm really into it. I think that's a really cool concept, and they weren't allowed to run. And they said, sorry, uh, we don't have the protocols in place to deal with an electrical fire if something goes wrong. And so that's a that's a short-term solution um, to the problem that, that I think will get more and more prevalent as electric cars and electric performance cars become a bigger part of the the automotive and and motorsports landscape. So if we're not forward thinking, um, we're going to be caught in this situation again uh, of being constantly reacting to change. Um, And for, for a sport that is so innovative, We've been very reactive in our response to things. You know, we, we talk about safety and, and safe, and you know, I, I keep going back to this. This isn't, this is not an inherently safe thing we're doing. It, it's a, it's an inherently dangerous thing um, that we're doing. We're, we're pushing machines to their limit. Um, machines fail, and rule number one, you know, people make mistakes. So with, with those two things combined, we're always going to have an element of risk. Cars, as special as they may be, are all replaceable. But the people driving them, um, my friend Peter, he's not replaceable. For anyone who wants to honor Peter and support the efforts to increase safety in motorsports, Peter's family would like people to make a donation in his name to the Motorsports Safety Foundation. Please go to www.motorsport-safety.org donate. And there's a link at the bottom to make your donation in memoriam of Peter. And uh, I don't know if, if Peter had, had insurance, uh, health insurance or, or, or life insurance, but if this is something that, that you do uh, often enough that you're listening to this podcast, then you, you need to have insurance. Um, you you got to, I know a lot of young drivers uh, who are, are trying to come up as professionals. Um, you know, some of you guys don't even have health insurance, uh, but if, if you've got, especially if you've got family, um, if you're married or, or have kids, please reach out to your, your insurance providers and, and make sure that you're covered for, uh, for on-track incidents. And thank you to, to Terry Borchella for, for bringing that up um, recently in, in a room full of, of coaches and instructors. We don't have an oversight body like the FAA or the NTSB. Motorsport is still largely a self-policing community. And like any large organization full of passionate people, there isn't always a consensus on what to do nor does change come quickly or proactively. If you're involved in motorsports, you've probably already made your peace with the dangers involved, but 
it always begs a second or third look. What else could you be doing to reduce your risk? If you coach from the right seat, you should have enough experience and judgment to establish limits with your students. Take the mentality that even though you're in the passenger seat, you are in control. If you compete or put your car on track with the intention to drive to the limit, even at a track day, take stock of your safety gear and the prep level of your car. Are you wearing a Hans device or if you're in a street car, a restraint system that works with a three-point seatbelt? Have you spent as much time and money prepping and maintaining the brakes, suspension, and tires as you have the engine? Ask yourself this. Do you know what to do when the shit hits the fan? Consider all the possibilities. It's a question you should ask yourself early and often. Racing is not safe, but there's no reason it shouldn't be made safer. And that responsibility lies with everyone who pulls out of pit lane and puts their foot to the floor. Thanks for listening. Follow at One Track Mind Show and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode.